0: that you get spiritual food today. So we're going to go to it right away. Luke chapter 15. If you have your Bibles with you, I hope you'll pull those out and start following along. Luke chapter 15, Matthew, Mark, Luke. If you're at home on watching online or Fox TV, Fox 17, hope you'll go find that dusty old Bible. Wipe it off. Open that thing up. Matthew, Mark, Luke. hit John. You're too far. Luke chapter 15. This is a story that needs no story to introduce it. It needs no other introduction. It's so shocking, grabs you right away. It's so perfectly told. I don't want to mess it up by introducing it. It's the prodigal son. Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11, listen to how Jesus tells it. There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he, the father, divided his property between them, the two sons. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. Now remember, this is a Jew. Jesus is a Jew. He's speaking to a Jewish audience, telling a Jewish story. He's being sent into the field To feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed, verse 16, with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. Full stop. This is a shocking story right away. Not, though, because. There's a situation with a broken family. We have increasing numbers of broken families in our society. Many of us here in this room say we came from broken families. We've experienced broken families. There's almost a normal nature to that. Now, it's just part of the human sinful condition. And if you're feeling that in your life, there's no judgment here in this room. Only grace The shocking part of the story is not that there is a broken family, and it's not even that this family is broken apart by wealth and possessions and inheritance. That's not the surprise. Have you seen that happen? I've seen that happen. What do you mean she gets the china? She doesn't even cook. Why would she get the china instead of me? I asked for the china he's getting dad's old recliner where dad would always be reading. He, he read in that recliner every day. That brother of mine's never finished a book his entire life. I'm not sure he did any homework at all in high school. It's a ratty old recliner. Nobody would want it this worn out. He couldn't even sell it for $5. Why is he getting the recliner? And that's just the small stuff. How come She's getting the family home and I'm just getting cold cash. Don't they know that I love that home, that I have so many memories in that home? Why does she, or even worse, they left everything to him? If you've ever worked with loss and grief and worked with families through that, you know that when the will is read, sometimes the fractures underneath the family surface come up to the top and an earthquake goes through that family tree. Sometimes the, the fault lines will never be healed again. I have an extended family member who went to his deathbed unreconciled with most of his family. He didn't get enough in the will, so he broke into the family farm, went up into the attic, stole what he wanted, damaged whatever else he could find, and stormed out and refused to talk to anybody for decades. Proud of my father for reaching out to him again and again and again, even to his death to try to bring peace. It it, it can be fractured. That's not surprising, is it? The surprising thing is that we're talking about inheritance and possessions and wealth and the dad's not dead yet. Yet. The younger son comes up to the father and says, give me my share of the inheritance. The father's still alive. Can you imagine that? Give me what's coming to me now, he says to his dad. The son, I'm 58. I got a little left in me. It's almost like that Monty Python skit, you know. I'm not dead yet. Shut up. You'll be stone cold in a minute. Bring out your dad. Bring out your dad. I'm not dead yet. I feel happy. Conk him over the head. Now, of course, now for some of you, this this, this is a little diversity moment. That's a bunch of white people from England making fun of things. That's Monty Python. Forgive me for referencing it in the pulpit. Am I dead yet? He's not dead. You want to say to this young man, who in the world do you think you are? Have you no shame, the shocking thing is a young man is treating his living father as if his living father was already dead. He's saying to him, I don't care about anything you have to give me. I don't care about your relationship. I don't care about your love. I don't care about what you've built. I don't care about what you've gathered. I don't care about your dreams. I don't care about your hope. I don't care about your old age. I don't care about taking care of you on your way to death's door. I don't care about any of that. I just want what is coming to me and I want it now. Now, that's shocking, and it's tragic, but I think we can stand back from something like that and make judgments on it and say, now, that's a prodigal. That's a lost person. That's a, forgive me, a jerk. That's a creep. That's a fill in the blank however you want to fill it in. Just be careful. We're in church and not see ourselves. So, I want to talk to you about a reckless life, but I want to talk to you about the reckless life in this little first part of the sermon in terms of the root of a reckless life. Where does it begin? How does it start in our hearts so that we can see ourselves in the mirror? Let me run through a couple, a few things here that that give you signs of the reckless life. They're right from the text. The first one I do not want to be controlled, I do not want to be controlled controlled. In the Greek, it is a command. He says, give me what is coming to me. Not just the older son, the younger son. He's two layers removed in this hierarchical culture. To his elder gives him a command, an imperative in the language. Give me. He wants control. Now, why couldn't he just wait for things to come? Why couldn't he live in his father's house? Why couldn't he do things his father's way? Because he wants to be in control. Second, I do not want to wait. Again, in verse 12, I do not want to wait. He says, give me what is coming to me. There is a future horizon on which there is a promise. I want to grab that horizon and drag it right down to today. I want what you've promised, and I want it now. You know, on these two first things, you know, Christians say they love submission. Until they have to submit. We love coming under somebody else's authority when somebody else has to do it. Now you need to follow spiritual leadership. Now that person's putting your life for a reason. And yet you need to listen to them. They have wisdom. No, you're just gonna have to submit. Now, now don't you tell me what to do. Now don't you tell me how to feel. Now don't talk to me about my family. Don't tell me how to do my job. Don't tell me about my finances. No, 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 no. Don't tell me what to buy, what not to buy. Don't tell me what to eat. Why are you telling me what not to eat? We love submission until we have to do it. We still want to be in control. Remember, coming to Christ is an issue of lordship, and we're supposed to be surrendering that control, and we're still in the process of trying to reach lordship so often. And, and what about Waiting. I felt this even recently, Holly and I felt like we had a promise come to us separately in prayer. Same phrase, each of us given separately, but it didn't come on the timeline we wanted it to come. And here we are still today, a day we thought we would have already had the promise and the promise hasn't showed up. And I started saying, I'm going to make this thing happen. i want to grab that future horizon and grab it down and put it right now instead of waiting. I don't want to wait. I'm like a kid. Climbing up into the attic, opening up his Christmas presents two weeks before. I do not want to be controlled. I do not want to wait. I want to try it all. Verse 13 says that he squanders his property in reckless living. Reckless is the word that is sometimes translated prodigal. In some of your versions, that's where prodigal son comes from. That same root word is used throughout the New Testament in the sin lists. Things that are included in those sin lists include things like gluttony, drunkenness, lust, promiscuous sexual activity, and parties that are thrown for all of those things to happen all at the same time, again and again in the same place, and that's the reason the party's going on. There's more I can say about that, but let's try to keep it at least PG-13. Are you okay? Are we okay? In other words, the Word itself lets us know that he is wanting to try the pleasures of the world. The Word itself lets us know that he wants to try and taste and drink and feel, and experience all that the world could possibly offer. And he doesn't want to wait. He wants to experience it now. And not only does he want to experience it now, he wants to experience it again, and again, and again, and again. And he wants it more intently, and more intensely. He wants to have better pleasures, and greater pleasures, and more numerous pleasures. This is the root of addiction, of course. But it starts with a simple thought in the heart. I want to try it all. I'd like to travel the world. I'd like to taste everything that could be tasted. Look at what they're getting to enjoy. Why don't I get to enjoy that? This goes all the way back to the garden. You can have any of the fruit of any of the trees you want, but not that one. Well, wait a second, that's the one I want, then. I don't want to just try most of it. I want to try all of it. I don't want to just try what you've set aside for this time in my life. I want to try whatever I want to try, when I want to try it, as many times as I want to try it. Now, we had duck donuts at our house yesterday. And I have to admit, I wanted to eat every single donut in the entire box. Everyone was different. A masterful masterpiece. Each one was colorful and different flavors, mixed of all kinds. Now I had this one; it was really good. But that one might be even better. Now I had a bite of that one. What if I had a bite of that one? I had to discipline myself. It took a lot of effort to cut one donut and you know, to several donuts in fourths and take one fourth of each and add that up to one donut. That's I wanted to try them all. And I got up this morning and there was that leftover box of Dr. Donuts. And I opened it and I looked inside. Ooh, there was probably just enough for the kids to have some. But I wanted that donut so bad. Took everything I could to put the lid back on the. You guys are more righteous than me, aren't you? You're more holy than me, Bishop. I can tell. You're not going to give in to that. <laughs> We're all that way, aren't we? I want to try it all. I want to be in control and I don't want to wait. And to add to all of it, when we have made a mess of everything, I want to fix my own problems. When he had spent everything and a severe famine arose in that country, he began to be in need. Verse 15, so he went and hired himself out. Listen, this is a Jew. To one of the citizens of that country, that would be a Gentile, first humiliation, who sent him into his fields, second humiliation. He was the son of a farm owner. Now he's a servant on a farm in the fields. That's the second. And to feed pigs, that's the third humiliation. Why won't he let somebody else help him? I'm going to fix this. I'll find my way out of this. If I work hard enough, long enough, I can dig out of this pit I've dug my way into. And the dirt just keeps, as he throws it, falls back on his head. The summary of this root in our life, the reckless life, when it's forming a root, is I will live my own way no matter what it costs me. No matter what it costs me no matter what it costs my family, no matter what it costs my marriage, no matter what it costs my children, no matter what it costs my coworkers, no matter what it costs my neighborhood, no matter what it costs my church, no matter what it costs anybody, no matter what it even costs me, I'm going to live my life my way. Do you hear the idolatry in that, the selfishness in that? And look at the beginning of each of those sentences. They all begin with I. And I, I, I often ends up with no one left but me. If I live my life wrapped up in I, I'll end my life with only me. There he is alone in the field, wishing he had pods to eat that pigs have, but nobody gives him anything. When he's Friends are everywhere, but when all of that is gone, he finally finds out they were just hustling him all along. Do you know what I'm saying? A generous man has many friends, Proverbs tells us, but a poor man, a friend he cannot find. Why? Because they're not friends. They're false friends. When your back's against the wall, when all the chips are down, when everything is lost, when you have nothing left to give them, they won't be there for you. Those people that you're longing for their acceptance, I know I'm speaking to someone today right now. Those people that you're longing for their acceptance, you're longing to be cool like them, brought into the circle like them, wanted like them, invited to the party like they are, they won't be there for you. They're all living for me, me, me. Turn back to your scriptures, verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I'm perishing here with hunger. He's starving. He's literally starving. When you're longing for pods fed to pigs, your body is eating itself. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Let's stop there for a moment. First of all, you look up here and you see a pastor. I know. I'm dressed like a pastor. Don't look at that. I'm a prodigal. That's what I am. I remember what I cost people. I I remember how far I ran. I remember how long I stayed. I remember how badly I messed it all up. I remember that there was no way out. I tried all my own solutions. All of them fell flat to the ground and made everything worse. Don't see a prodigal. Don't see a pastor. See a prodigal. That's what I am. And when you look around here in this room, there's nobody here that couldn't fall in one way, shape, or form into that category. But ask yourself this question, how should that story end? How should the story end? He says, I'm going to rise and go to my father. Now some of you are Christians, and you know how it ends and it kind of messes it up. Not how does Jesus end it? How would it normally end with normal people who do normal things? What would happen? Now, let me tell you some of the ways if it wasn't Jesus, if it was some other system, if it was karma if we were running this whole story with karma, well, he got what he deserved, didn't he? He threw that out into the universe. The universe threw it back to him. Do you see that? He's just getting what he deserves. He's got a bad aura. He stinks, but he's also got a pretty bad aura. Uh, just having lunch with some friends uh, this week at an Indian restaurant, it was really good Indian food. The goat curry was just fantastic. Meat falling off the bone. I'm not making you hungry right now. Stop. It was really good Indian food. Uh, but uh, I asked them to just read the prodigal story with me. I do that when I'm working on a sermon. I said, I've already studied. I've got a sermon written. Tell me what you would hear here. One of my friends who was there, William Merle, he's the, the academic dean of the new seminary we've launched. We just launched Every Nation Seminary. And uh, uh, he was sitting there, and he said, well, you know what? I actually asked this question of two Muslim friends of mine, and one of them gave me a pretty clear answer in terms of how an Islamic reading of this story would end. He would never heard the prodigal sto- son's story. He didn't know how it ended. William stopped right where I'm stopping right now. He said, well, if it was a Shia and the son made it back to the father, the father would smack him across the face and say, you have no place here anymore. Be gone. If it was a Sunni and the son made it back to the father, the father would say, it's good that you came back, but I like your idea. You should be a servant. You have to earn your way back here. I'll go with your plan. Then he took the same story, this story, to a group of atheists in a Bible study at Vanderbilt and asked them how they would end the story. They didn't know the story either. You think it's famous. They'd never heard of it. Nobody, all the way around the room, nobody predicted the end of the story. Not a single one. The the shock is lost on some of us. This is not the way normal people act. So this is why I want to call it this. It's reckless love. We've been talking about a reckless life. I want to talk about the father's... Reckless love. Let me read it to you. He rose and came to his father, verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. This is reckless love. We're going to go through this little bit of the passage here in a moment, but I just want to say it is reckless the way he's acting. First of all, the father wastes time watching for us. The son has been wasting his property in a reckless way. The father's now wasting his love in a reckless way. The father's wasting time. How do I know that? Well, let me ask you a question. How did he see the son coming from a long way off? How's he the first one to notice him? How is he the first one to recognize him? I'll tell you how. He's been watching the road his son departed on every day since that son left home. Every day. Hour after hour, he would glance over his shoulder to see if that silhouette was coming up over the hill, to see if that recognizable gait of his son was limping its way home, to see if that certain way his son holds his head came within view. You ask a dad, he'll say, I recognize my son a mile away. He's been wasting time Remember, we're the prodigal looking for us. Second, the father wastes energy running. To us, It says he sees him from a long way off and runs to meet him. No Middle Eastern man would run. He not only is a Middle Eastern man, he's a middle-aged, well-respected man with great status. But he grabs his robes, he tucks them up to his waist, showing his ankles and his knees and (laughs) high steps towards his boy. I don't care what they think. He's running. Now, in my house, my son's sitting down right here. It's making me a little emotional seeing you, buddy, because I love you. My son, he'll hear me sometimes say this. Hey, you got young legs. I got old legs. Can you run upstairs and get that phone? I left it up there. Go on, young legs. Now, that's just right and good and normal and true, isn't it? He's got young legs. He can run through two basketball games straight and hardly be tired. Me, I go up the steps. I'm winded. You know, I got old legs. You get up there and get my phone. This father closes more territory than his son. Racing. Wasting energy. That son's going to get here. Wasting energy unnecessarily to get to him out of a heart of reckless, abandoned love. That's my father. Do you know my father? The father wastes resources covering us. Look down in verse 22. If you still have your Bibles open, I hope you do. It'll be on the screen. Verse 22, the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on him and put sandals on his feet. You know what it doesn't say? Hey, uh, start up a fire, uh, put some big cauldron of water on it. We need to draw some hot water and I want you to get him in a bath right away. Do you smell a stank on this guy? I mean, this is pig stank. That stays with you for a while. No, I'm from Indiana. Maybe you all don't know. I don't know how many hog farmers there are in the room. But we have a place in Indiana called Aroma, Indiana. I'm pretty sure it was Hog Stink that made them name that place. When you drive past a hog farm, you smell the hog farm. And this guy hasn't just been driving by. He's been sitting in it, looking really close at that nasty pig, nosing that pile of refuse getting the pods out of it. He smells and stinks. He's been on a long journey. He's not bathed full of body odor mixed with pig odor. He is, he is dirty. He is shabby. He is worn out. He smells. The father doesn't say clean him up. The father says cover him up. The father doesn't wait till he has his act cleaned up before he embraces him. He says, get not just any robe, get the best robe, the single best robe in the house. Cover over him, cover over his sin, cover over his stench, cover over his mistakes, cover over his failings, cover over anything that would make him look like anything less than my boy. That's the father's reckless love. Now listen, that's pig stink. It's unclean stink. When that robe touches that boy, it now has to be burned. What are you going to do with that robe? It's unclean. He wastes, he wastes resources covering us. The father wastes reputation to restore us. In verse 22, he not just gives him a rope, he gives him a ring, the signet ring that could be pressed into wax to form a legal binding document with a scroll that would commit the family to financial arrangements, the sign of his sonship, the sign of his authority, the sign of his position, the sign of his wealth, put back on his hand. This is his father's reputation at risk. Don't you know what he did with what you already gave him? Are you a weak man? Are you a foolish man? People are going to ask, what are you doing putting a ring on that son? The father finally spares no expense to celebrate us. Verse 23, bring the fattened calf, the one we've been preparing for quite some time the one that we've been preventing its meat from beginning to be tough or gamey. Bring that fattened calf and kill it. Let's eat and let's celebrate for this. My son was dead and is alive again. He's lost. Now he's found. Remember, I am the prodigal. I haven't forgotten, have you? That's me. Summary the Father's rich in mercy. Reckless in love. He wants to lavish love upon us out of the richness and abundance of His mercy. Romans 5 tells us He wants to pour out His love into our hearts until it's overflowing and His love does not disappoint. Ephesians says, I pray together with all the saints that you would know how to grasp how high and how wide and how long and how deep is the love of Jesus Christ. He doesn't just want you to taste His love. He doesn't just want you to feel His love. He doesn't just want you to experience His love. He wants you he wants to fill you with his love when the spirit fills you it is the spirit of love that comes within you and when that wells up within you a joy and a peace and a love comes that you can't describe and you can't get any other way the father wants to recklessly waste his love on you that's my father do you know him that way You'd think that's the end of the story, right? The tension is resolved. All the good things have happened. The lost is found. But no, something else emerges you wouldn't expect. The story turns and turns again. Look in verse 25. We're going to read about the resentful heart. Now, his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And the older son called one of the servants and asked, What do these things mean? And the servant said to the son, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened gaff, calf, because he's received him back. That's the first miracle. Safe and sound, that's the second miracle. Verse twenty eight. But the son was angry and refused to go in. Do you see the bitterness? His father comes out and entreats him, but he answered his father Look, these many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you, when he comes, you kill the fattened calf for him? You hear it? Do you hear the anger? Do you hear the bitterness? Uh, the rage. Let me walk through the resentful heart with you. The marks of a resentful heart quickly. I need to go through them quickly. They're in the passage. I won't have time to point you to each verse. First, I serve to be seen. Haven't you seen me out in the field? Haven't you noticed me? Why aren't you paying attention to all that I'm doing? Is that why you're serving? So that you can be seen? When you're not seen and not noticed... Is that a ding or are you kind of happy that you're secretly serving and nobody noticed because after all, you're trying to serve? The second, I obey to gain love. He says, I've never disobeyed you. Why aren't you giving love to me? I thought that was how this would work. I would do great obedient things. You would give me great, wonderful love. Why aren't you pouring things out on me? Isn't that why I'm obeying? No, 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 no. Wait a second. Don't you have it backwards? Are you obeying to gain love or are you in love obeying? Because you love so much, you want to give more, obey more, serve more. The reckless love of the Father hasn't changed this heart yet, you see. Third, I need to be celebrated. If you find yourself in somebody else's celebration moment thinking, why aren't they celebrating me? And you're frustrated by that and you feel the pulse of the resentful heart growing inside of you, watch out. It's trying to get a hold of you. It's trying to grow inside of you and take over the heart of reckless love that the Father wants to give you. It's trying to take over. I need to be celebrated. Uh, Fourth, I am waiting for what is mine. That's what the Son is doing. Now we realize He's not just loving the Father and enjoying the Father's love and not expecting anything in return but the love of the Father and enjoying the Father, and He hopes His Father can live as long as possible. No, no, no. He's waiting for that man. You see, to give him what's coming to him or get out of the way so he can have it. He's biding his time. He wants what's coming to him. In other words, at the root of the resentful heart is the same root that is at the root of the reckless life. I want what is mine. It's the same heart. Finally, I want people to pay a price. I can understand that. He lived a reckless life, and now that person's dead. She did a reckless act. Now they're in bankruptcy. I can understand some of that. But listen, did you pay your price for your sin? Could you pay your price for what you've done against an infinite An absolutely perfect God? Does the Spirit say to you, you could pay enough? No, no. You see, a resentful life leaves us in the same place as the reckless life, alone, except this time we're alone in a crowd. The reckless life ends up alone in the field. The resentful life can end up right here, right there, right there right up here, right here. Haven't you seen what I've done? Haven't you paid attention to what I've been giving? When's mine coming? When's that future horizon coming to right now? I'm not doing this out of love. I'm doing this to get. Now, come on, when am I going to get my goodies? That's the same heart. Uh, you see, we can be in the father's house doing the father's work and not have the father's heart. I must say that last time. one last time. We can be in the father's house doing the father's work and not have the father's heart. What's the solution? You've already heard it. It's the same solution for the prodigal as it is for the bitter son. Reckless love. Reckless love is the only thing that can fix what reckless lives have broken, including the brokenness in the heart of the bitterness, older son. Reckless love is the only thing that can fix what reckless lives have broken, not earning it back, not changing the karma, not being shamed strongly enough, not working your way back into the family, not righteousness, you can't be righteous enough. All of our righteousness is like dirty rags, Isaiah tells us, Before the holiness of God. Anything we try to do will fall short. Yes? Is this the gospel you know? There's only one true older brother. His name is Jesus Christ. He saw the sins that we'd committed and the bitterness that we hold. And he came all the way downstairs. And he said, I'll pay the price for that robe. I'll pay the price for that ring. I'll pay the price for that sandals. I'll take the humiliation of reputation upon me. I will take the scorn. I will take the shame. I will take the sin. I will climb up onto that cross and pay the infinite price for the infinite sin for every single prodigal and every single resentful son in all of the universe. I will pay it once and for all so that it can be done. And for him, it was for the joy set before him that he went to the cross. And we are that joy. And he says there's more rejoicing in heaven for one sinner who is saved. There's more rejoicing in heaven for one lost coin in the house that's plucked out of the crevices of resentment and brought into the light of God's glorious grace. Would you stand with me? I have one story I want to share, and then we'll be done. A few years back, I was in a team-building exercise with a bunch of preachers. Have you gone through those team-building exercises? You know how these go. We were blindfolded, all the preachers were blindfolded, and there was a set of chairs out in the parking lot with ropes tied between them. They told us they were going to lead us into that rat's maze, and the team-building exercise was that we had to find our way out blindfolded. We could either work together, we could work alone, we could do it any way we wanted, but we had to find our way out of the maze. But if at any time you needed help, just raise your hand and somebody will come help you right away. If you're scared, if you're fearful, if you need help for any reason, just raise your hand. Blindfolded. Five minutes in, I heard that, you know, raise your hand again if you need any help. And I ignored it, I don't need any help. Goodness sakes, it's just a little rope maze. I'm going to find my way out of this. I'm going to beat this thing. I'll show you guys. Not that I'm competitive. Seven minutes in or so, I heard, well, some, one person has found their way out of the maze, but if you need help, just raise your hand. And that started to repeat itself. Two people have found their way out of the maze. But if you need help, just raise your hand. Five people have now found their way out of the maze. But if you need help, raise your hand. I'm starting to get embarrassed. I'm thinking, what do these people know that I don't know? I start trying to make a mental map and feel my way around, holding on. Now I turned left and then I turned right. And now there wasn't something there, so I'm not going to go that way again. I'm trying to piece it all together in my mind. I find a buddy of mine and say, let's team up. We'll try to figure this out together. We're not getting it. Then people who had found their way out started calling, Dave, if you need help, just raise your hand. Dave, if you need help, just raise your hand. I'm going to, no, 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 I don't need help. I'm not, I'm fine. I'm not scared. I'm going to figure this out. I refused. Me and I think one other person were left in the maze at the end when they told us to just go ahead and take off the mask. We looked around and we found out there was no way out of the maze. The only way anybody got out of the maze is they raised their hand. And as soon as they did, someone came and took their hand and untied a knot they couldn't untie. They weren't allowed to and led them out. That was the best picture I've ever had of what it's like to really truly be lost. No, I don't need any help. I can fix this. I'll take care of it. No, I know, you know, you're saying, he's probably saying this for somebody else. I'm fine. Thank you very much. God has designed this thing to work this way. He won't allow you to fix yourself, because that's part of the problem, that we want to fix ourselves. Whether it's that resentful heart that's beginning to beat within us, or it's the reckless life that's starting to set in roots, and we don't need to go to some far country anymore, the guardrails are off of our society, we can just go across the street to live a reckless life here in America, shoot, we can just reach into our pocket and pull out of our phone and pursue the pleasures that we, we shouldn't be pursuing. He won't let us figure it out on our own. Would you bow your heads with me? Uh, Some of you in this room, as you're listening, you've been recognizing that, you know, there is a resentful heart growing in me. I've been serving, I've been giving, I've been obeying, and things just haven't been coming to me like I thought. I didn't even think that was wrong. I just felt like it was just, I wanted what, should be coming my way but now now that you say it dave there's some resentfulness there would you just slip up your hand to the lord as a confession to him you slip it up and right back down just say lord yeah that's me you Now, everywhere all over yes yeah keep slipping them up if the spirit just knocks on that door just slip it up yeah i see you man you can put it back down there up in the balcony yep i see you yep all the way in the back i see you in the shadows Wonderful. Thank you for that humble confession, for saying, Lord, I need help. Somebody's got to help me with this. Now there's others in the room. Let's just admit it, there's some part of your life that's become reckless. Maybe it's a hidden corner nobody knows about, and that root has started to dig in, and you're pursuing pleasures you shouldn't pursue, seeking things you shouldn't seek, running away from God, maybe in hidden and secret ways. Others of you, might. this might be the first time you've darkened the door of a church in a long time, you can't believe you haven't been struck down by lightning because you know what you've done and everybody else knows what you've done. It could be a long stretch in between those two, but if you would say, you know what, Lord, now that he's been talking up there, I realize that reckless life is taking root in me. Every head bowed, every eyes closed. You just want to lift up your hand to the Lord and say, that's me. It's just you and him. Say, that's me. Yeah, everywhere. Goodness, yes. Anyone else? Yep. Way up in the back, you can slip it up and slip it back down. Yep. I see you. Anywhere else? Yes. Just slip it up to the Lord and back down. All right. Everybody keep your head bowed and eyes closed unless you raised your hands one of those two times. And if you did... Look up and lock eyes with me. If you're looking at me, that was you. It's the same solution to both sets of people. You need someone to help you out. So I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm not forcing you to do it, and God can certainly work in your life outside of this moment. But ministry team, if they're coming down here in just a moment, people who are trained to minister and pray and to help people find their way into God's reckless love. And if that was you, come right now. Let them pray for the little bit of resentment that start to build up in your heart. Let them pray for that little bit of recklessness that started to take root. Let them pray with you. If you haven't given yourself over to the Lordship of Christ, let them pray with you. Let me tell you this, do it alone. See how far you get. You'll end up in a field, alone. You'll end up outside the party, alone. Christian's gonna sing a song. We'll Terry, for a moment when she sings. You come. If you haven't come already, if you're nervous, just grab the person next to you say, come pray with me. They won't know if it's them or you. (laughs) And that person next to you, I guarantee you, they won't mind.